This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 75. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Adrian Day, Chairman and CEO of Adrian Day Asset Management. We first met Mr. Day in 2017 at the Sprout Natural Resource Symposium, and we have done two interviews with him discussing his viewpoints on geopolitics and natural resource investing. I wanted to do an interview with Mr. Day on the podcast to get a deeper understanding of his investing philosophy and process. On his website, he outlines how he and his firm don't just focus on resources, they also focus on value and global opportunities, the latter of which I wanted to understand a bit further because we have not covered this topic in depth. The goal for this episode is to learn more about Mr. Day's approach to analyzing and investing in global markets. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 75, and I would like to welcome Adrian Day, Chairman and CEO of Adrian Day Asset Management to the program. Adrian, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. So, um, you know, as we always do here, I wanted to start with your background. And how did you get your start with investing and in finance? Well, you know, I'm from London originally. I'm a graduate of London School of Economics. And my original interest was in economics, but actually economic policy uh, and economic theory, much more than um, much more than practical. But one thing morphed to another, I think one could say, without going to a long-winded explanation. So, you know, from writing about economic policy and theory, I got interested in, in economics and what was happening in them and how it affected the economy and how it affected markets. And eventually I took a job with, uh, I don't know if you remember, Robert Keppard with Personal Finance, originally Inflation Survival Letter, at the end of the 1970s. So... Um, you know, I wrote on on economics and investing, and one thing led to another. Um, I started this particular business, managing money, in 1991, mm-hmm. and I did it, frankly, as a response. This might sound a bit corny, but I did it largely as a response to readers um, who would read the article and would do precisely. Um, they would manage to turn good advice into a disaster or manage to turn bad advice into an even worse disaster. (laughs) You know, it was interesting to me how you could have, you know, 100,000 readers reading the same article and you tell people, someone, someone someone once asked me what they should do with a particular stock. 
And I said, oh, my gosh, I haven't looked at that for a couple of years. We sold that, you know, years ago. Yeah, well, I said, do you still own it? He said, yes. Uh, why didn't you sell? Well, it would have been a loss, so I didn't want to take a loss. And, of course, the loss was a lot worse now. So there's lots of stories like that of people. And I thought, you know what? I understand, you know, people don't understand the markets. Uh, they've got other things going on in their lives. Just makes sense for someone to do it, you know, who's who's following the markets full time. It makes sense to have a manager do that for you. I think. So, so what was the original impetus then for you to even get that that sparked your interest in economic policy and theory? I mean. Uh, you know, you don't just uh, apply to go to the London School of Economics and uh, and at there decide, okay, I like economic policy and theory. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, oh gosh, I think it came about from the political. I was a very political animal in England, mm -hmm. so it came about from the political side of things. We had a politician in England called Enoch Powell. Some people over him may have heard of him. He seems to have most of his fame for a speech he gave on immigration um, in 1968, which actually was quite prescient, but that's a different subject. But he, he also had very strong views on economic policy. So I was attracted to what he had to say about immigration, what he had to say about Northern Ireland, what he had to say about the European Economic Community, which morphed into the EU, on which I would also say he was very prescient. Um, so those things attracted me to him. And as I got to know him, and because I knew him personally, but as I got to know him and also listened to a lot of his speeches, you know, it became obvious that he was also very, very interested in economic uh, issues, uh, floating exchange rates. We had uh, money, um, what do you call it, um, uh, incomes policy in England at the time. Um, and so I got to I got to learn, I got attracted to the economic um, policy uh, because of my interest, I think, in in, in other sort of uh, politics. But he was a very, very smart man. He went to Mont Pelerin. You know the Mont Pelerin Society. He was a member of that. And um, uh, I guess one thing led to the other. And after, after listening to him, I wanted to learn more. I, I read things like Henry Hazlitt, Economics in One Lesson, which is an absolutely astonishing book. Um, Hazlitt, as you probably know, was editorial director of Wall Street Journal back in the 40s and 50s, and he wrote this little book called Economics in One Lesson. And, you know, if, if, if any of your people listening have not read it and they have an interest in, in general economic policy or they don't quite understand how things all fit mm -hmm. together, I don't think there's a better book than that one. Mm -hmm. For a beginner, for a beginner. Sure. So, so then my next question is, and you know, this is a microcap podcast, focus on microcap investing, you know, and I'm not sure if when you first opened up your shop in 91, you were focused on microcaps, or maybe that was an aspect of it. But you know, maybe at what point in your career did, uh, were you inspired to start looking at microcap stocks? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it could be a little bit of arrogance thinking, well, you know, if I write about IBM or Nestle, you know, 
it can only go up, you know, 10%. My goodness, that doesn't win me many kudos. But this thing can double and triple. I, d I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I, I got, I well, let me let me back off a little bit. I got interested in gold. I was always interested in, in gold as a monetary, uh, as a monetary um, uh, uh, metal. I, I, in fact, gold, gold coins were my very first investment that I made, you know, when I was 12 years old. So, and, and I was interested in, in gold and gold as money. Um, and so, so naturally when I got this job with personal finance, uh, editing investment columns, I got particularly interested in gold as an investment that led to gold stocks as an investment. And as you probably know, if you're, if you're truly interested in gold stocks, you are inevitably interested in micro caps mm -hmm. because there just aren't many, many gold stocks that trade over a couple of billion dollars. I mean, most of them are small. Right, right, right. So then, okay, so so gold was really your first investment. That's where you you kind of got your bearings, you know. Then from there, I guess my next question would be: is you know your investing philosophy? You know, what is it? What what about gold? What about the commodity itself and and gold stocks? Uh, what about them drew you in? And you know, another thing too. Well, I'll ask that. I'll save my next question for a bit. So really, on this one. Um, you know, what is it about gold stocks that helped shape now your you and your firm's investing philosophy? Yeah, and I should just back off a little bit and say we don't only manage gold. I mean, our firm sure. manages global investments. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, my my initial uh, approach was the very naive approach of thinking that you know, if gold goes up. 25% for gold stocks should inevitably and inexorably go up 100%. Mm -hmm. Well, some do, some don't, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So I got a, I got a very, very big um, learning experience, luckily before I was managing money for other people, but I got a very big learning experience in realizing that there's an awful lot to the junior sector, particularly exploration companies uh, that can make them go up or indeed not go up even in a strong gold market. So that was a very, very uh, key, key learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the thing that obviously appeals to me about microcaps is probably the same thing that appeals to everybody, which is, you know, you, you have the possibility of getting in on the ground floor of something that could develop into something huge. And, you know, the next Microsoft and all that, or the next Apple. But but even if that's not it, you you have much greater potential for a double, a triple, a ten-bagger mm -hmm. if you're dealing with a microcap. And I think that's what makes it appealing. Right. So I guess, so then, you know, from there... This is I found this on your website, and you know we've done a couple of video interviews with you now, you know at, at various conferences. And one thing I really wanted to dig in here in regards to the your investing philosophy is this idea of uh, having a global view of investing. You know what is what does that mean? You know, our basic view is to take a long term value, a, a long-term global-oriented value approach. 
And all of those three things, long-term value and global, are important to me and to my approach. To have a global view, um, I think it comes about because I come from England or Britain. Britain is a small island um, off the western coast of Europe, as we're often reminded. Um, (laughs) So clearly Britons have, for centuries in fact, had, you know, have looked to the world at large, uh, whether it's, you know, for empire, but also just for trading. Um, Even now, inside the European community, um, Britain has an extremely diverse, geographically diverse trading pattern, much more diverse than, say, uh, the United States or... um, uh, Germany, for that matter, or Switzerland, you know, our, our trading is very global. And I think it become it comes about because we're a small, small country. Um, and because of that, when a normal, when a typical British person invests, they are as likely to buy a non-British company as they are a British company. And when I first came to the United States, which was in 1974, um, I was astounded at the, if I may say this, at the parochial attitude. And it was, you know, it exhibited itself in thinking that, uh, you know, baseball games of a World Series when there's hardly anyone, well, that's not quite true, hardly anyone, but there's about four countries that play baseball, but suddenly, you know, it's it's really America's game, and it's called a World Series. Or when you read the um, Atlanta newspaper, and they have a world page, and the world page is actually U.S. stocks, uh, U.S. news. So it's a very parochial kind of attitude. Now, that's changed, of course, over the last 40 years. But it certainly exhibited it very much in investing. I would say in 1974, in the mid-70s, very, very, very few investors made any deliberate effort to invest any of their money outside of the United States. Um, John Templeton, of course, was a big a big exception with, with his mutual funds. But most ordinary investors and most brokers would say, I don't know why you're bothering. You know, there's enough opportunities in the United States. And to me, that seemed a little bit perverse. It was, um, it was like saying, I'm only going to invest in stocks that begin with the letters A through M, because there's plenty of good opportunities, A through M. Why do I want to look at N through Z? And I, to me, that was much the same as saying, I'm only going to look in the United States. I'm not going to look at Switzerland or Britain or Japan or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And now that's changed, of course, but even today... People seem to have the attitude, well, you know what, I'll invest X here and Y there, and I'll put 15% or maybe even 20% in foreign stocks. And that's not the way I look at it at all. I don't look at it as domestic versus foreign. I look at the world as though I were outside the world, looking down. And whether it's a U.S. company or an Argentine company or a Swiss company, it doesn't really matter to me. It's the quality of the company mm-hmm. and the price that you pay. Obviously, if you're buying an Argentine stock, you want a bit of a discount over a U.S. stock, obviously. I'm not pretending that they're, they're, they're equal. But, it's a, but, but there are certainly opportunities um, 
in different countries. And at different times, we've had a, a, a majority and a large majority of their assets outside of the United States. And at other times, we've had most of our assets inside the United States. Mm -hmm. So why do you think as because I'm, I'm guessing when it comes to the, the mindset that you're talking about, it's really geared towards more of the individual retail investor where, you know, back in the 70s and even today, you know, some some criticisms I hear of not, you know, looking at stocks maybe on the AIM or the ASX is because ugh, it's hard. I'll just look at what I got here, even on the TSX. You know what I mean? Like, is 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 that is that what you where that came from too? Um, I think that's part of it, but I think earlier it was just much more of a of a sort of fundamental view. But um, I've got to be careful what I say as an Englishman. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, but America is the best. America's number one. Sorry. America. You are, I was going to say, listen, you already, you already dissed uh, with, with the World Series, so you, you can't go much oh. lower than that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I 19, in the mid-1970s, U.S. stocks represented about 70% of uh, total world market capitalization. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it was certainly true, but there was more than enough in, in, in America to look at. And that was, of course, totally different than for a, for a Swiss. I mean, no Swiss, absolutely no Swiss person would say, I'm only going to buy Swiss stocks, mm -hmm. even though there's plenty of good Swiss companies. But, you know, a Swiss person simply wouldn't say that. Can you imagine the proverbial Belgian dentist saying, I'm only going to buy Belgian stocks? <laughs> and and uh, largely that's because the markets are so small, of course, relative to the U.S. Sure. But now the U.S. market cap is, uh, what, a Mm, I should have looked this up. It's about 30%, I think, of the world's market cap, if you include all the frontier markets. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you say I'm only going to look at U.S. stocks, you're, you're, you're leaving out more than half of the stocks in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, what I, I was, I was going to say quickly to just follow up on that, you know, I mean, how e easy or hard is it? For um, you know, global investors, not I guess non North American investors or non U S investors, to uh, take positions in U S stocks. I mean, is it is it as difficult for U S investors, or can be as difficult for U S investors to to take positions in in companies on global exchanges? Yeah, no, that's a good, an interesting question. I think because. Because there's so many stocks available in the U.S. and because the history of the U.S. or most people in the U.S. is to look only at, at U.S. companies or foreign companies that are listed in the U.S., you know, that's acceptable if right. they list in the U.S. But because of that, you find the you, you find that most brokerage firms have been very, very, very slow to make it easy for investors to buy foreign stocks. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're in Switzerland or in Singapore, because you buy foreign stocks all the time, it's as easy to buy foreign stocks on a foreign exchange as it is to buy a domestic Singapore stock. Uh, uh, and so part of it is the need has not been strong enough or the demand has not been strong enough. But, you know, I'm a big I'm a big um uh, get on my hobby horse for a second. You know, when 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 U.S. people buy non-U.S. stocks, and stocks that do not list are not listed on the U.S. 
or don't have a sponsored ADR, which is a lot different from an unsponsored ADR. So if, if you're looking to buy a stock in Singapore that is not listed in the US and you go to you know, Fidelity or TD, you, you have to enter that trade on the OTC market. Mm-hmm. And I think you, I'm sure you've talked about the OTC market oh, before. Yeah. Absolutely. If you've ever talked about foreign stocks, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's, is well, anyway, it's just a way of getting raped. It really is. You either pay too much or you miss your trade. Um, so I, th- I thought for a long time, but it just simply makes sense for, for investors who are interested in foreign markets. And by foreign, I'm, I think Fidelity lets you buy in like five major countries now. But I'm talking about you're interested in a lot of foreign markets. It makes sense to pay more, to get a, to get a you know, full-service broker. Um, do they even call them full-service anymore? I don't know. But to get a brokerage firm where you pick up the phone and you talk to somebody and you say, I want to buy XYZ, on the Singapore exchange with a 50 cent Singapore limit. And I do not want to buy an EOTC. It makes sense. You pay more, but your execution is going to be a lot, lot better. Right. Um, yeah. So, and that's slow, slowly changing, slowly right. changing. So uh, my next question then is, you know, now digging, you know, I wanted to, to dig a little deeper into your, your due diligence process and, and, uh, you know, not because you, you know, you made the point earlier about how, you know, you, you know, you look at, at the, the, fi- uh, the investing markets where you look at, at a worldview, you know, for me, I'm thinking to myself, wow, that sounds like a lot of work to call down to, you know, the, the companies that you tend to probably be looking for. So, you know, what is your process then when you do, uh, are, are you're looking to assess a potential new investment? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's so much information available now on the on the internet. The problem is sometimes too much uh, information and not enough um, sorting of that information and analysis. But there's certainly no shortage of information. You you obviously have to have some kind, and I'll get to my my uh, process in a second. But you obviously have have to have some kind of general knowledge as to, let's say, Hong Kong and Singapore, how good are those accounts? You know, can I trust them? Can I rely on them? I mean, the answer to me is yes. I think, uh, you know, a set of accounts for a public company in Hong Kong or Singapore are equally as good as a set of accounts for a company in the United States. Um, Can I trust uh, the books of a uh, Brazilian company? Maybe a different question. Um, what about you know Germany? Why do all these companies seem to be trading at such low book values? Um, I mean, such high book values. Well, they book multiples, I should say. Well, that's because they tend to be extremely conservative on marking up their book value, whereas in the United States companies tend to be a little bit quicker at marking up their book value. So you just have to sort of know those things because you can't make a direct comparison between one country and the next um, in, in every aspect. So I rely an awful lot um, 
I'm a generalist, right? And um, so there's certain things that a generalist is good at, and there's certain things that a generalist is not so good at in the in the resource space, for example. I'm not a geologist. I don't, you know, I have a a working knowledge, but I'm never going to. I'm never going to be ahead of a curve in picking an exploration stock because of a geology. There's always people who are going to be ahead of me, like Brent Cook, who I think has spoken at your conference. Mm -hmm. So I'm never going to I'm never going to win that game. So I have to know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Um, I rely an awful lot on people. So when I invest in a particularly a junior company um, or micro cap, if that's what what you want to call it, I like to meet the management and get to know them. Um, so, you know, once a year I will go to Hong Kong or I'll go to Singapore um, and, for example, and I will visit um, a dozen companies. They may be ones that I know already. They may be ones that people have suggested to me you might want to take a look at. They may be ones that just look cheap on Bloomberg. Um, or, or on the web, you know, there's, there's, as I say, no lack of information. But it's good to go and visit the company and visit the people and visit the operations um, and make an assessment from there. Uh, so, you know, I, I get a lot of sources um, which recommend specific stocks. I mean, you know, I'm happy to mention some or, or, or not, but there's a lot out there that are very good that give you ideas. Well, my, um, I was I was going to say my where where I wanted to go with this too is you know, um, like in terms of when you're going through and you're doing your let's say let, let's assume you do some screening right and um, right. you know you put you put in your metrics that you're looking for you know when you're in that process and say okay I want to go in the discovery phase and I want to look for some potential new ideas you know is it are you inspired more on a region itself and then dig deeper there or is it that you have your your base metrics you have your screen for all for all the global markets and then you call it down from there you know how, how does you know because I feel I feel like a lot of my audience you know may want to look abroad at different opportunities but like you said there's so much information and to be able to focus in on one thing you know what 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 would you say is your advice on that? Yeah, well, certainly the resource sector is a little bit different. So let's let's sure. move that aside for the moment. I I do from time to time do screens, but I think more often not with me. I get an idea that just sounds good. It might be an article I read. It might be in a newsletter. It could be in Barron's, for example. It's just an idea that sounds good. There's a thesis that just makes a certain amount of sense given where the market is um, at this time. And I will then start digging deeper into it. Um, that means looking at, the, looking at the financials, of course, looking at the press releases, seeing what the company said they were going to do a year ago. Did they do it? Didn't they do it? Why not? You know, did the CFO resign last month? You know, et cetera. So just, you know, just digging, you know, and – as I say, all that information, I mean, I use Bloomberg. All that information is available on Bloomberg. Um, but you can also get that information, um, you know, a lot of places. Mm -hmm. My edge, if you like, is because I've been in this business a little while, 
and I've written a couple of books on global investing, I'm in a fortunate position where in pretty much any sector or pretty much any market, um, I have contacts in the business. Mm. So if I'm looking at uh, Hong Kong banks, for example, and I don't want one that's too exposed to real estate, I don't want one that's too exposed to China, um, but I'm looking at, at banks in Hong Kong, I'll do a screen. In this case, I'll do a screen. I'll look at the ones that look cheap, the ones that pay a dividend. I like dividends. We can come to that in a second. Um, and a consistent dividend. And I will, you know, just, just look at the balance sheets, look at the, look at the track record, look at, uh, you know, what they've done and look at the valuations. And I will say, well, gee, this one looks good to me and this one looks good to me. I will then contact someone in Hong Kong and say, hey, um, XYZ, I'm looking at Hong Kong banks. I don't know if you think that's a good idea or not. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea. And the two I like are X and Y. Mm -hmm. And he might come back to me immediately and say, well, I'd forget about Y because, you know, the old man is going to pop off soon and the children don't know how to run a bank, but they're not going to sell it because they own 60% of the shares. And, you know, I didn't know that. Um, or he might tell me, you know, but in the market, they're just losing market share and they're losing it because, you know, they're just, um, their marketing's not any good and, you know, young people just aren't using the bank. So I would avoid that if you're thinking of holding it for any period of time, whatever the story might be. But it's very, very helpful to have local people mm -hmm. who have that local knowledge, just as in this country, there are things that, now, we may have different views on it, but, oh, oh I don't know what, you know, um, Sears, you know, six months ago, or J.C. Penney today, you know, someone from abroad might look at it and say, well, this looks awfully cheap. But you might say, look, you know, people just aren't shopping there anymore. Yeah. Um, and if they are, they're only going when there's sales. So, you know, sure, the, the revenue's holding up, but it's because they're selling four times as much stuff to make the same revenues. Right. So you, you, you get a sense from the local market that you just can't get from the from looking at the books. Mm -hmm. By the way, for full disclosure, do you own any Sears or have you owned any Sears or JCPenney? Oh, no, never. Okay. Perfect. Um, I should say that if I ever say anything that's at all um, favorable in the company, you can assume I own it. And if I um, dismiss it or dis as they say these days, <laughs> I probably don't own it. But anyway, yes, I will, I will remember to say that for sure. And then, well, so another thing I want to follow up cause you hit on a really interesting point where, you know, as part of your due diligence as a global investor, you know, you want to get a better understanding of what's going on in the local markets. I mean, you know, for you, because you've been doing this now for, you know, well over 25, 30 years, you know, um, what are some of the things that are on your criteria list when you're assessing the market, not necessarily the company, but the market that you're looking to buy uh, uh, that that company stock in. Okay, L let me first of all, my typical my my main focus is as a bottom up investor, right? And I, everybody who's listening knows that what a bottom up and top down is, yeah. Um, Do you think? Give a quick explanation. I'm, well, there might be a few that don't. Briefly, there's there's sort of two 
different ways of looking at markets if you're fundamentalist. I mean, you can obviously be a momentum investor or something else. But if you're a fundamentalist, you can take a top-down approach, which is basically saying, um, hypothetically, Thailand's just had a coup, the market's sold off, but uh, the economy's strong and they're going to get inflation under control. So I think Thailand's a good place to look. And if interest rates are going to come down, maybe the banks are a really good place to look. A bottom-up investor says, um, as Peter Lynch famously said, uh, I think he said 10 minutes spent uh, looking at the uh, economy and markets is nine minutes wasted. So you look purely at individual companies and the quality of that company. I'm something of a hybrid because I think the extreme extreme bottom-up view – um is 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 not is not rational frankly because interest rates moving up or down military coups in countries inflation rising or falling oil going up or down britain leaving the eu or not leaving the eu all these things have an impact on the economy as well as on the market so you can have the best company in the world in Zimbabwe or in Venezuela, but you know, if if the government wants to nationalize it, it doesn't do you much good. So, I I think I think that's a bit of an a bit of a, a a little bit extreme. So we take a little bit of a hybrid approach, but but fundamentally and particularly with smaller companies, I tend to take more of a bottom up approach. Mm-hmm. But particularly with smaller companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not looking so much at countries as I am at companies. But but to answer your question, I mean, one of the things that's very important to me is, you know, what are the finances of the country like? Um, are they improving or getting worse? Uh, and And – from that, what is likely to happen to the currency? Is the currency cheap or expensive? And currencies, to me, are notoriously difficult to to get right, particularly in the short term. Um, you know, people have been saying that the Asian currencies are 30 40% undervalued on a purchasing power parity, and they've been saying that for the last 20 years. So maybe they are, but, you know, does that really matter? if our time horizon is something less than 30 years. Um, but certainly what's going to happen to the currency is very, very important because clearly if I'm investing in, let's say, a German company and I think the value of the euro is going to go up a lot against the dollar, I clearly don't want to invest or I want to de-emphasize Uh, German companies that export a lot to the United States. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, I think, um, you know, the the, uh, current, if I think the currency is going to go down, exporters would be the more appropriate thing to to invest in. So the currency and what's going to happen to the currency um, is, I think, the most important determinant at deciding what type of companies you look at, domestic companies, importers, or exporters. Mm -hmm. That's the most important determinant. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, I look at companies first, 
and then I see, okay, what sort of factors are really going to hurt this company? If I'm looking at a at a at a Singapore company that really is not doesn't export anything and doesn't import much, got high intellectual capital, uh, low low labor costs, then what are the things that are going to affect that company? Is it rising inflation? Is it a higher Singapore dollar that will make their contracts more expensive? Outside, I mean, they don't export physical, but the, but they have contracts in other countries. I look at what are the things that are going to hurt that company, and are those things, in my view, because it's only a view, are those things likely or less likely? Mm -hmm. So another another question I have in terms of you know looking at you know global markets and companies outside of North America, and is you know it's one criticism or not so much a criticism, but one thing that might be holding some investors back is, you know, oh man, there's so many differences in accounting standards and I got to think about that, you know. How do you navigate that sort of uh, uh, critique? Um, you know, I think it's a lot, it's a lot like a lot of things, frankly. <laughs> you know, if, well, if you start collecting stamps, I'm sure there's a heck of a lot, people don't collect stamps anymore, do they? Well, Bill Gross did. But if you start collecting stamps, there's an awful lot of things you learn and know now that you didn't know 10 years ago when you started out. Um, you, you can't learn everything before you start. I mean, that's, I think, uh, uh, I, I'm a great believer that experience is, is the greatest teacher. Um, and I don't know why I said stamp collecting. Maybe I just read an article about Bill Gross selling his stamps, but it it could be anything. You know, there's there's things that you just don't know and nuances. You you play soccer maybe, and you play against an Argentine team. You know, that has a lot of fast forwards, and you play against a German team that has a very heavy defense. Well, you kind of learn these things, and you learn different styles and. It becomes a gut reaction after a while, but um, you have to learn. You know, nobody can teach you that. Right. And I think that's true of – I'm a little off track maybe, but I, I think that's true to a large extent of global investing. There are facts and tendencies that you learn. As I say, German companies tend to be very conservative on on book value. Um Hong Kong companies tend to pay very high dividends, have high dividend payouts. Um, and so you want to, you don't want to be misled by comparing a Hong Kong company with a Swiss company and saying, my gosh, Hong Kong companies are paying 7% and the Swiss are paying 3 Therefore, the Hong Kong company must be half as cheap. Not necessarily true. Um, but you learn those things after a while, and I'm a great believer, and, you know, money is important, I understand that, but you learn by mistakes. Right. And so if you're getting into a new area, maybe global investing, maybe junior exploration stocks, you know, start, I mean, some people like to paper trade. I've never thought paper trading teaches you as much as actual physical losses. But, you know, start small. Don't put all your savings into the first thing that somebody tells you is the next great thing. I mean, that's sort of obvious advice, but it's amazing how many people, um, you know, don't do it. Right. Um, yeah. 
so so my next question is because you know we've I met you going to you know many mining conferences. That's where we've mo- you know done our interviews with you, and you know what's interesting is because you know as you said on here and then also on your website, you know you describe yourself as more of a value investor. And most value investors I've interviewed on the podcast tend to focus on looking at potential investments that are revenue generating businesses. You know at, at the very least, and, right. and and tend to ignore the pre revenue sectors like junior mining or even biotech. You know so. But I wanted to ask you, you know, is it possible then to be a value investor in commodity-based businesses? Pre, let's say pre-revenue commodity-based that's, businesses. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think the truth is that there are not any, and if there are any, there are very few what we would call Graham and Belt type value investments among the mining business. In the mining business, occasionally you come across a company that's selling for less than cash. But the truth is, there's normally a very damn good reason why they are. So I think it's for, I, one has to apply, I think one has to, I apply different criteria when I'm looking at uh, resource stocks and particularly pre-production and when I'm looking at uh, other stocks. So I still try to take a, a value or if you like, one might want to call it a conservative or cautious approach. Certainly among the the bigger miners or, or miners generally, I like, um, I favor uh, royalty companies more than I favor the producers. And that could be a large producer, a small producer, uh, you know, a big cap. I know you're not talking about the Franco Nevadas here. We do own Franco Nevada, $16 billion market cap. You're not talking about that on, on uh, micro cap podcast, but you know, smaller, there's some smaller royalty companies out there as well. Um, and I, I think the royalty model is a more conservative uh, model than a mining company. Mm-hmm. And among the exploration companies, what I look at is what is the biggest risk for an exploration company? What's the biggest problem? Well, the biggest problem is that uh, discoveries are very rare. And so there's a lot of different statistics that are thrown around, but uh, Newmont says that one in 10,000 anomalies becomes a 3 million ounce uh, deposit. That's, and, and if you have a smaller horizon than Newmont, some people say one in a thousand anomalies ever becomes a mine. So the odds are very, very low, number one. Number two, if you're an exploration company, you typically don't have any revenue. So you have to keep going back to market to raise money, which dilutes your existing shareholders. So I look at what what models, what business models and what individual companies can mitigate those risks of extremely long odds and excessive dilution. And you look at a, a, a business model called the prospect generator, for example, which are exploration companies that generate early stage exploration uh, projects, but then farm them out to other companies who spend the money to earn into it. And so a company might, for example, farm a project out to you know Newmont or Ajax or whoever, who will spend, for example, they'll have an obligation to spend $3 million over the next three years exploring the project. And if they do that, they then have the right to 50% of a project. 
And if they spend another five, I'm making these are hypothetical numbers, another $5 million over the next two years to produce a feasibility study, they then have 80% of a project. Mm -hmm. The beauty for the prospect generator is that they don't have to spend the money. So they've given up, they've, they've given up 80% of a project, but the dil or potentially, but the, the dilution is at the project level, not at the company level. And it means that that company can go out and develop another project, uh, find another, uh, you know, generate another project here and another project there, and hopefully farm those out. So they have two, three, four different projects that other people are working on, spending their own money, and the company avoids that excessive dilution uh, mm -hmm. of shares. So that's just an example of the sort of business model I, I, I look at to avoid uh, or to mitigate the risks. See, what's, in, what's interesting about you know, your, your answer to that question is that you know, your value investing approach isn't so much – well, yes, of course, it is based on the numbers and what you see. But it, it, when you're trying to keep your eyes open to other sectors that aren't traditional – value um, uh, areas, you know, you, you, it sounds like you really focus on the business models themselves and where, you know, uh, there can actually, actually be an edge or potentially, uh, uh, um, I don't, I want to, I don't want to say moat because it, in commodities, it's really people dependent, but, um, you know, it, it, that's where it seems that you are able to, to, really focus that value type of strategy on is really that in any sector you can derive a certain type of business model that could work for you and work towards your criteria. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, people are critical to me. Of course. I never, I never invest in a junior company unless I've met the people and I think have a fairly good understanding of the way the people work. Mm -hmm. And that might be, you know, it might be just going out to dinner with people and seeing how they how they react. And you know, there's a lot of clues. Like if you've got a junior mining company, frankly, that's worth you know ten million dollars, and they've just done a financing of two million dollars, which is twenty percent dilution, and then they take their key supporters out to the best restaurant in town and order a three hundred dollar bottle of wine, that is not a good signal. And I don't care how good a geologist that person might be, that is not a company I want to invest in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, until companies are earning money for shareholders, they've got to be very, very good stewards of that money. Uh, we used to say, some of you will have heard of Ross Beattie, who is a legend in the mining business. He's called a broken slot machine because pretty much everything, every company he starts turns into a big winner, and, and we own several of them. But um, they used to say he, Ross, recycles his paper clips. <laughs> um, you know, you've got to be when, – when you're not earning money for shareholders, you've got to be very careful spending the money. That's something I, I truly look at. Mm -hmm. So – now I got to ask, you know, and you talked a little bit about your invest, you know, uh, one of your investing experiences that guided your your strategy and your your process a bit earlier in the podcast. But, you know, I'd say maybe over the last, you know, let's say 10, 15 years, I mean, what, what would you say is a, an investing experience that has really uh, taught you and, and guided your current strategy? You know, maybe some type of global investing experience that you're like, wow, that 
That was crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, we, huh. <laughs> I'm not sure what lessons one can learn from these. So, I mean, we were very heavy investors in Telefono de Mexico. Um, your older readers may appreciate that one because they were paying dividends of 33, 35, um, percent a year. And it was one of John Templeton's largest, uh, largest positions as well. And that did just fabulously well over the years. But frankly, I think at that point it was more luck for me than anything else. Um, I, I, th I think the biggest lesson I've had, particularly with smaller companies, is how well do I know the company? My biggest mistakes, my biggest mistakes, and certainly the ones that I regret more than any others, are the ones where I invested in something because I was carried away by the upside and I didn't really get to know the company well enough and get to understand what could go wrong. Um, hopefully, I think over the years I've I've learned not to make those mistakes. Um, and when I look back, my biggest winners have all been. Again, I tend to be a long-term investor. My biggest winners have all been companies where I really knew the people very, very well. Where I stayed in touch. I knew the companies extremely well, um, and. I mean, it sounds obvious, but if you really know a company well, you know how to react when the stock price goes down. Should you be selling or should you be buying more? And similarly, when it goes up a lot, you know, is this an extreme price, time to take some money off the table or, 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 or not? And, you know, getting to know the people, and of course, I mean, you, you use a sieve, so as you get to know them, uh, you, only, you only stay with the ones that are good. Um, you know, but I think of Virginia, which was one of our largest positions, doesn't exist anymore. I started investing in that company when it was a dollar, no, when it was 50 cents and got to know the people, got to like, uh, uh, uh the CEO very, very much, you know, honest, ethical, competent, generous, etc. Um, stock went to 20 cents, but I just loaded up on it because I had a, understanding of a company and a strong a strong um support for the management you know if you don't know a company so well and it goes from 50 cents to 20 cents your initial reaction will be why didn't i sell it at 40 let's get out of this dog um and you can miss a lot of things like that mm -hmm. um another classic i mean frank and nevada i first bought frank and nevada at a dollar 50 at 70 cents on the 1987, when it first came out, and the stock went to a dollar fifty, and um, for various reasons I won't go into, I sold half of my position, thinking, "Hey, a double's good." Well, you know that stock's now at seventy dollars, but it's had various, uh, various um, uh, uh, um, spin-outs and um, um, uh, 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 what do you call them? Um, not consolidation. Um, you know what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah, um, along the way, but make that probably about a thousand dollars stock. So, um, and we do own a lot of Franco, but uh, selling that at, at, on a double was a mistake. 
buying more Franco when it dropped in half was was the good thing to do. And I think knowing the companies tells you what to do. Mm-hmm. So then what what advice would you have for microcap investors that, you know, want to look globally? They wanna they wanna open their eyes to some different opportunities outside the US and Canada? Um you know, I think there are some there are some good sources of information. Um, I mean, I don't know. Can I name something? Go for it. Yeah, um, some of some of your readers will know Seeking Alpha, which is a sort of um, uh, people write their own articles and submit them. You can you can screen them. Uh, you know, I only want global. I only want Asia. I only want big cap, small cap, whatever. So you can screen, and they send you a list every day of new articles that have been written on um, on on those subjects that meet your criteria. Uh, you learn over time. This guy really doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy is really good. And you learn over time which ones you like and which ones you don't. Um, I get a lot of ideas from that, but they're ideas. You have to do your own homework. You have to pursue it a little bit more. Um, I think if you're going to smaller countries in particular, I mean, if you're investing in smaller countries, nothing beats actually going to the country uh, and visiting it. You know, go to Singapore, see, uh, you know, what the economy's like, talk to people. You know, you can always find people to talk to in those countries, even if it's just in the bar, you know, or, or, or in a taxi. You get a sense of whether the economy's doing well, not doing well, whether inflation's high or not, um, and what people are thinking. Absolutely. But I think it's important on smaller countries to actually go and visit. Mm-hmm. Hey, not a bad reason to go for a vacation. Not at all. You and can... maybe you can write it off. That's right. On... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not tax advice. That's just, um, Yeah. <laughs> So, so Adrian, you know, uh, we're, we're rounding the bend here. So wh- where can my audience go and find more information about you and, uh, and your firm? Okay. I have a website, which is adrianday.com, which is pretty easy. And it's Adrian, A-D-R-I-A-N, um, D-A-Y. Uh, the asset management is adriandayassetmanagement.com. All right. Well, Adrian, thank you again for joining me today on the podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you at an upcoming event. Well, thank you very much. All right. And thank you for persuading me to get Skype. (laughs) You're very welcome. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Adrian, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.